take out your Bibles and turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be reading verses, we'll be studying verses 1 through 7. Thank you. You probably will need that. (laughs) Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the title of our message is Confident Joy. Confident Joy. There are many providences. Uh, some of which were mentioned already by Pastor Harding. Uh, there were other providences even in our order of worship today that fit very well with what we're speaking on today. So hopefully you've found it by now. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May he be pleased to bless it to us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence that the Apostle Paul had in his Lord Jesus Christ. May we too have confidence in him. May we find our joy despite any circumstances we may find ourselves in. May we find our joy in Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, that we may rest in Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that gives you your greatest amount of joy? What do you place your confidence in? In terms of joy, many of us might say that our greatest joy in life might be found in our families, Uh, Perhaps uh, some of us have great joy in various hobbies, traveling. Maybe you have a great joy in just simply not working. 
As for confidence, many of us say that we have confidence. We might have confidence that when we go outside, our car will start. Uh, of course, Pastor Harding found out uh, yesterday that he may not, that may be misplaced confidence. Perhaps we all have confidence in our own abilities. You know, our culture places great uh, emphasis on having confidence. You know, we're told uh, all the time, be confident. When you do something, do it with confidence. Then you're going to be happy. Be confident in what you're doing. Just do it, right? So what is the true source of joy and confidence for the Christian? Well, we're today looking at uh, what I think is a marvelous portion of Scripture, a Scripture which points us to the fount of our blessing and our joy. Uh, This letter to uh, the Philippian church is one which uh, really throughout exudes joy. In fact, the words joy or rejoice are used dozens of times throughout uh, this letter. And Paul's concern is for the church to live out their lives consistent with their citizenship in the heavenly kingdom. He wants to encourage them in Jesus Christ. He wants to constantly point them back to that source of joy, to their Savior at all times. And so we begin in verse 1 where Paul gives a renewed exhortation to his readers throughout the letter up to this point. He had already been saying this and he says it again, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This verb, uh, rejoice, is an imperative. It's a command. He's in fact commanding the Philippians, you need to rejoice. You must find your joy in Christ. This uh, exhortation recalls uh, another one that Paul had given earlier in this letter in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, where he says this, listen, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison. He's saying that he's going to be poured out like a drink offering. He's, well, he figures he's going to die soon. And he's saying, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. This echoes also Psalm 32, verse 11, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Listen, no matter the circumstances, no matter the the trial or the difficulty, we're called to rejoice in the Lord. Now, you might say, well, that is easier said than done. I mean, don't you find it hard to rejoice in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation? How can we rejoice when life is so hard? I ask myself, how can I rejoice when my wife is in such great pain right now? Uh, The Hardings are perhaps asking, how can I rejoice while my grandson is very ill, when my children are feeling sorrow? Many of you, I know, I mean, we just look at this prayer list. You might be saying, how can I rejoice in the midst of this great difficulty? How can I rejoice when life 
has so much misery. God's Word says that we are to rejoice, but that is hard. So what does this mean? What does it mean to rejoice? Because God's Word doesn't tell us to do things knowing full well that it, we're not going to be able to do those things. How can we rejoice in the Lord? Well, first of all, we should understand that this is not some kind of superficial cheeriness which ignores our surrounding circumstances. This is not what God is calling us to. We're not called to be Pollyannas playing the happy game as if everything was actually fine. And if you've ever read the Pollyanna books, I think the movies don't, or the movie doesn't really capture the idea. We're not called to just think happy thoughts and then all the bad things and hard things of life will just melt away. This is not what the scriptures call us to. No, what we're talking about is a Christian attitude of joy which is rooted in our Savior, Jesus Christ, grounded in the hope of the gospel, which finds outward expression in all of life, realistically taking into account the adversities and trials and pressures of life, which we all will pass through. This is the joy which Paul is talking about. He's talking about a gospel joy. He's talking about the work of Christ in us. He is talking about the kind of joy which recognizes God's mighty hand in all the circumstances as He fulfills His gracious purposes. And you might say, well, how, how does Paul know about this? I mean, what, is, what are his credentials to, to speak of these things? Yeah, we know that he's in prison. Well, Paul himself preached Christ in many hostile places. He was under great duress. If you want to know Paul's credentials, listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Okay, Paul, I think you got me. Paul knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And Paul was writing this letter from his Roman prison, knowing, or figuring at least, that death was to come soon. And yet our brother had joy. And this is why he said, this is, this is no trouble for me to write these things to you. As hard as life has been and is, it is no trouble to write to you to rejoice. It's not hard for me to put that on paper. In fact, this is a reminder of where our joy and confidence comes from because it serves as a safeguard against false teaching. But you might say, how so? Like, the, the connection of this seems sort of strange. 
Well, because there were people in Philippi who Paul was writing to who were seeking to steal the joy of the church through false teaching. It says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, it's hard to see this in our English, but Paul is actually using an alliteration, which is to say that each word begins with the same Greek letter. I'm not known for alliterations in my outlines. Um, But it would be something like this. Look out for the canines. Look out for the corruptors. Look out for the cutters. These these are three descriptions which probably refer to the same group of people. They're categories of error which the church in Philippi needed to be on the lookout for. Likely, he's pointing to the Judaizers, so-called Christians who demanded that the Gentiles follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And so this first description Paul uses is the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, first of all, we should understand, this is not Fluffy or Fido. This term, the dogs, evokes images of uncleanness. Dogs in the ancient world were well known for feasting on dead animals, filth, and garbage. If you've ever been to the third world, it's kind of like that too there. And packs of dogs would wander into cities and villages and they would fight and they would wreak havoc. They were considered to be dirty, miserable creatures. You're going to look at your dog at home a little differently now, aren't you? So the term is actually being used as a pejorative of anything that's unclean. Dogs were considered to be unclean by the Jews. And yet here, Paul is using it to describe unclean people who prowl around the church looking to lead people astray. And so there's an ironic reversal happening here. The Jews consider the Gentiles to be dogs. Unclean, miserable creatures. But Paul asserts that it is in fact the Judaizers who are to be regarded as dogs. For they are the ones who are causing unrest in the churches. They're picking fights and causing chaos. So Paul says, look out for the dogs. Second warning is to look out for the evildoers. Now we might say, who are these evildoers? These are those who are wickedly working against the truth of the gospel. Those who are seeking to undermine the church. They're serving not the Lord, they're in fact serving the devil. They're like the dogs mentioned who go from place to place creating havoc, picking fights. They are doing what is not good. They are in fact missionaries of evil. They labor in an evil cause with an evil motivation which is to lead people away from Christ. So Paul is speaking of those who come and they teach a false doctrine. And this is as much of a threat in the church today as it was in Paul's own day in Philippi. Because doctrine matters. And this is really what we've been talking about in Sunday school too. Doctrine matters. Bad doctrine will damage the peace and purity of the church. And there are people, even today, who are teaching Christianly things for their own gain. And so Paul is warning against this. 
This is why Paul warned the elders and overseers of the church in Acts 20. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. Because, listen, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Isn't this a sad reality of many churches today? People being led astray by workers of evil, wicked teachers who teach false things. The third category or uh, word that Paul uses, he says, look out for the mutilators. Now, this is purposely provocative language that Paul uses. He is specifically referring to the circumcision party. Those who thought that Christians needed to follow the law of circumcision. These opponents of the gospel who took great pride, in fact, in their circumcision. They looked with great pride in the removal of flesh. And Paul's saying, "This this is no good. You're not doing something that's good. You're just mutilating people. Now, just to be clear, Paul's issue was not with circumcision itself. Circumcision, no circumcision. This was not the issue. The issue was the idea that somehow it added to their salvation. Telling someone that in order to be saved, you had to do this this one extra thing. Whatever that is, that's leading people astray. And so Paul is writing against those who are trying to add to the gospel. And listen, adding to the gospel is no gospel at all. It's, it's a, there's no good news in that. The result of that non-gospel will also be an empty joy. There's no joy. In fact, it's nothing more than a terrible burden. And sadly, many today even have been robbed of their joy in Christ because they are following a false gospel which is no good news at all. Watch out, he says, for the mutilators. And so you have these false teachers who take great pride in their law-keeping, in their circumcision, thinking that they have somehow achieved righteousness through their work. Demanding physical circumcision, though, actually has caused them to miss out on a spiritual reality. You know, circumcision matters, but it's a matter of the heart that makes one truly circumcised. Look again at at your scriptures at verse 3. For it is we, he says, who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul is giving a threefold description of of God's people. He's saying those who are truly the circumcision, which is to say those who are truly God's people are those who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Christ and have their confidence, not in fleshly things, but in Christ. Jesus tells us in John 4, 24, but the hour is coming as now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Beloved congregation, you and I worship by the Spirit as people who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We have been made new creatures in Christ. And so we worship by the Spirit. Second, the people of God give glory in Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't give glory to ourselves. We don't have confidence in ourselves. We, don't, we only give glory to Him. We boast in the magnificent work that Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. He is the one who purchased salvation for us. He is the one who poured out His blood on our behalf. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn our salvation. Only Jesus Christ is worthy of all glory. And the third description of the people of God is that we do not put confidence in our flesh. You you and I don't have any room for boasting. We have no grounds for boasting in ourselves. Now, of course, this does relate to what had come before. All glory belongs to Christ because you and I don't bring anything to the table. This contrasts greatly with those who think that somehow they can earn or add to their salvation. We have nothing to boast in. We have nothing to boast in. In fact, this is Paul's point. He's saying, look, if if somebody has anything to boast in, I do. Not me, but the Apostle Paul, right? Look at verse 4. If anybody had anything that they could boast in, if anybody had fulfilled everything that was required, it was the Apostle Paul. Here's his credentials again. Listen, though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Well, tell us about it, Paul. Verse 5, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecutor of the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's the Apostle Paul. You think you can, you can put confidence in the flesh? You think perhaps you've done enough to earn God's favor? Paul says, here's what I've done. He, he's given all of his, his privileges as a, of Jewish descent. He's given all his personal achievements regarding law, his orthodox upbringing, his religious and moral attainments. I've done everything. Everything the law required. And you know what it's good for? Nothing. You could be born into the right family. You could be born into the right tribe. You could go to the right church. Here's Paul. He's a full-blooded Jew. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. In fact, he could trace his family all the way back to the patriarchs. A long line of covenant-keeping worshipers of God. The blood in his veins was the blood of Abraham. His family had done everything that was supposed to be done. He had been a Pharisee. He was so zealous for the truth that he was on his way to take and to change chains Christians. Until he was visited on that road to Damascus by Jesus Christ. On that day, everything changed. 
He was totally and fully righteous and faultless. And all of that is worth nothing in the eyes of God. Listen, this, what Paul is saying here, to our ears does not seem that strange, but to the Jewish ears in that day, this would be absolutely shocking. What do you mean? What do you mean that all the work I've done is worthless? All of the sacrifices, all of the law-keeping, you're saying that I've done nothing, Paul? Yes, you bet. You bet. Because the law was not kept for its own sake. The purpose of the law was to drive people to the hope of their Messiah. And when Messiah came, when Christ came, that hope was realized. And they needed to come to Him. This is the good news of the Gospel. God the Son fulfilled for us what we ourselves could never attain. But there are far too many Christians, even in our own day, who place their confidence in the fact that they grew up in the church, that they've been good, they've done everything that has been expected of them, they walked the aisle, they prayed the prayer, whatever, whatever you want to call it. They memorized the shorter catechism. Listen, religiosity achieves nothing. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you know this verse well, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, I tell the kids at school all the time, your, your parents raising you in the church does not make you a Christian. Attending church doesn't make you a Christian. Doing good deeds, trying to conform yourself to to the law, this is not what saves you. Only Jesus saves. Only the grace given to you by faith results in salvation. You and I have nothing to boast in save the blood of Jesus Christ. When it came to the attainment of the flesh... Paul could boast. As a matter of fact, he could boast more than anyone else about it. And yet all of it, Paul tells us, is loss. That's what he says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider it a loss. That day when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he experienced a total reorientation of his life. All the things he considered to be profit, his upbringing, his righteousness, his achievements, all of them were now lost for the sake of Christ. He had once put confidence in the flesh, all the privileges of the flesh, all the attainments of the flesh. But when he was wonderfully converted to Christ, something changed. He saw all of those same things, not as gains, not as advantages, but his loss. Christ was the difference now. It was Christ who was the center now of Paul's life. 
Christ did what Paul himself could never do. As hard as he tried, as good as he was, as zealous as he was, Christ paid the penalty for sin and saved Paul from eternal life. Paul needed to trust in his Savior, not himself. Beloved, you and I need to trust in our Savior and not in ourselves. Putting confidence in ourselves is the great error of the works righteousness system of salvation. This is not putting God at the center, it's putting man at the center. It is only the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone which can atone for your sin and my sin. This is God's economics. Another way to think about it is, you know, Paul is talking about profits and loss, is to think about a ledger. Think about a ledger. Imagine there's this ledger, and on that ledger is righteousness and sin. Your sin side of the ledger is infinite. You have no righteousness of your own. You're just a sinner. And you keep sinning. And no matter how many good deeds you do, they just never offset all of that sin. Listen, you can't atone for it. There's nothing you can do. That ledger just keeps getting filled up. And by the way, it's not just your ledger, it's my ledger too. You cannot satisfy your debt of sins. What are you going to do? You can't do enough. The only one who can satisfy your debt, the only one who can pay that side of the ledger for you, is Jesus Christ, who himself has an infinite amount of righteousness. Only Jesus can pay for your sin. Only Jesus ransoms your sin so you are no longer a slave to sin. And so He credits you with His infinite righteousness and He takes from that sin side of the ledger and He puts on His side. He carries that that debt of sin. There's a great exchange which takes place. He gives you His righteousness. And he takes upon you his sin. Beloved, this is what we call double imputation. God in Christ makes this marvelous exchange. All of those things that you thought were in the prophet column are lost because your true prophet comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and his infinite righteousness, an alien righteousness which is imputed to you. It's marvelous. All of your self-righteousness, all your good meritorious work are considered loss in in comparison to the infinite riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't Isn't that wonderful? You think about, that's the goodness of the good news of the gospel. It's wonderful. So we might then say, where we begin, how do I rejoice in the midst of my suffering? I now now own, as a sinner, I own the righteousness of my Lord Jesus Christ. Is our confidence in ourselves or in the Lord? I'll submit to you that many of us would say that our joy and confidence is found in Christ. We, We know the right answers to the questions. But we don't often, we often don't always live like that's true. Often we live like we don't really believe in the gospel and the power of the Spirit in, the, in our lives. Now, I, I ask this question of myself, why is this? 
Well, for one thing, we're at times weak in our faith. I, I at least am weak. I judge you in light of my own character. We think too much of ourselves, perhaps, and too little of Christ. We forget about what Christ has done on that ledger, that spiritual ledger, if you will. Maybe you're like me, but too often my joy and my confidence is dictated by my circumstances. I become a functional Pharisee as I begin to think that God is punishing me, and this is why I'm going through these difficulties. This is, by the way, the error Job's friends fell into, right? Job, you deserve this. This was coming your way. You know, you and I don't always understand God's purposes, but we can have confidence in Him and His promises because He is our source of joy. The one who is a source of our salvation is also the source of our joy. Oh, that we would consider the things of this world, even our own righteousness, to be rubbish for the sake of Christ. That we may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That even as we share in His sufferings, we may become more like Christ. Pressing on toward the goal of the upward calling, resting secure in our heavenly citizenship as children of the King through faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation, I encourage you, rest in your Savior. He has done all the heavy lifting for you. Rest in Him. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder of where our true joy and confidence come from. We thank you that Jesus Christ paid the the debt of sin for us. And that we don't need to add somehow to it. That you have given us the free gift of salvation through the blood of your own Son. And that he covers us. We thank you for Jesus. Help us to be mindful of these facts and to rest in that even as we experience great trials and difficulties, that our eyes may always be looking forward to that better country, that heavenly kingdom, as we journey on towards that day where we be with you in glory. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.